Happy New Year, everyone. From myself, Mooncat and Co., and yourself, <coughs> you're feeling a wee bit picky. I was all right yesterday. You are Ocho, by the way, we should explain. Anyway, I'm not well. Let's get on. But <laughs> no, you see, no, you, you've got to... What's the expression they use these days? You've got to suck it up. I can be unwell on a podcast if I want Do to. Do you think that if Teddy Wogan, on one given evening was mopping his brow and he had a wee bit of a fever and what have you. Do you think that that would have stopped him from going out and interviewing, I don't know, Emlyn Hughes on a Wednesday evening? Definitely not. He would have just gone out there. I should repeat Wogan. I would love to see repeats of Wogan. I was saying to yourself the other day that Wogan is currently hosting a retrospective on Ed Sullivan shows on TCM in the UK. And I'm thinking, why can't we have a Wogan retrospective? I mean, we did have that thing on Gold a while back where he revisited some of his interviews and had them come back on and, and so on. But yeah, let's let's see unfettered Wogan. Let's see the real thing. Just throw it out there and, and there you are and whatever. Tell you what, though. Ed Sullivan. The bloody hell did he ever go on television? Good God, man. I mean... Possibly gives a certain amount of safety to certain sections of the audience who are being exposed to this hip-shaking rock and roll music, and with it being presented by this rather staid-looking gentleman, probably didn't do any harm. Yeah, I suppose there's some truth to that, because if you've got your stereotypical nuclear family household and there's Pa with his evening paper and his pipe... That was me doing impersonation of a pipe smoker. Hang on, we're talking about the audience in 1950s and 1960s America. We're not talking about the Bruins. <laughs> now, this is a really weird thing. I don't think that Pa Bruin would have approved of rock and roll. But funnily enough, I think that Grandpa Bruin, I think he actually would have been a bit more easygoing about it. Is that fair, do you reckon? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm not quite sure when that should be, but yeah, definitely Pa's a reactionary. I mean, he, he's not going to have any time for that Eddie Cochran or any of those people, you know, they're doing their pelvic thrusts. It's absolutely disgusting. It's not what he pays his license fee for. But yeah, Grandpa Poon, he'd be a bit more sort of, ah, whatever, let him be. And he'd point out to Pa Bruno, oh, you were a tear away in your youth and what have you. You used to have your go-kart. Not that there's a definite link between so go-kart that's it. and um, Eddie Cochran. But, Ed yeah. Sullivan was Grandpa Brune to America. Anyway, sitcoms. I have my any other business. Are you wanting to do this like in a sort of financial year basis or something? So you've got up to no. the end of March. Just got stuff to yak on about that I left unsaid or didn't explain. Well, for instance, I don't think I explained well why I thought the legacy of Reginald Perrin wasn't a bad idea. And the thing that I think differentiates Perrin from the Liverbirds and things... Perrin had its own world, very strong sense of it being in a world rather than just also an interaction of characters. So I can understand the idea of exploring that world. I just don't think Legacy did that. And also, speaking of Legacy of Reginald Perrin, and people said, oh, you know, you can't do it without Leonard Rossiter. I watched on Christmas Eve The Funny Side of Christmas from 1982, which has a Reginald Perrin sketch. With Leonard Rossiter, and uh, no, you can you can actually produce some pretty <laughs> dry, lumpy old Perrin with Rossiter in harness. Yeah, I felt that that was. I wouldn't say going for the motions, but I think that it was a little bit contrived because we spoke about the funny side of Christmas on Christmas Eve, and that was a Christmas night with the stars type of show, and you had a whole load of 
popular sitcoms all crowbarred in with five or six or seven minutes apiece and so on. And yeah, it just the the whole premise about everybody just turning up on Christmas morning to see how red she is, it didn't really didn't seem realistic. I mean, okay, I'm I'm talking about realism in the world of Reginald Perrin. I I get it. I, I know that it's mildly nonsensical at times, but even so, yeah, it, it just sort of felt we need to get all these people in a room and here they are and so on. And as far as that overall show was concerned, I'm gonna hold off open all hours because I think there's something to be said about open all hours with relation to today's topic. But Butterflies, that was an interesting one as well, because... <laughs> Another sequel to Butterflies. I hadn't realised there were two sequels. Mm, yeah. Well, I was hopeful that at the end of that 82 episode that Leonard would just knock on the door and there would be Rhea and she jumps into the limo and they book into the nearest travel lodge and damn near break the bed frame. Didn't happen. And I guess that... I was hoping, because there'd been an Only Fools and Horses sketch with Nicholas Lindhurst, an original parent sketch with Jeffrey Palmer, <laughs> and Michael Ripper, the chauffeur from Butterflies, had also turned up in Reginald Perrin as a tramp. I was hoping they just hadn't bothered to get out of character. <laughs> so Rhea finds herself living with Rodney Trotter <laughs> and Jimmy. And outside, <laughs> Leonard's chauffeur as a tramp. Yes. Well... Why ever not? Okay, that kind of thing would have happened had all this been done live, but thankfully it wasn't like that. It was a bit odd actually to see Only Fools and Horses in here when they had a Christmas special in 82. So, it yeah, it got double time. Okay, so any other outstanding business of 2013? There was a, a revival, an interesting revival we didn't mention. A sitcom coming back after 11 years. Bootsy and Snudge came back in 1974. Oh, yes, that's right. Now, this is the thing, because this is contemporary, so this is not in the style of, say, the Glums coming back. That I have it's... no idea. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing this. I just this. stumbled across it yesterday. I can't remember what... I must have been looking up some actor's filmography to spot who that guy was, and it said Bootsy and Snudge. He, he was in a couple of episodes in 1974. 1974? I can't imagine such a thing. I do remember repeats of Boosting Snudge on Grand Plus back in the day, but I don't remember them ever getting to the 70s ones, but maybe they did. What's another one to go on the list if we ever do Return of Re Revival of Revivals? <laughs> no, I'm sure there'll be plenty of scope for Revivals Part 2 in the future, because there's plenty out there that we haven't covered yet. Well, let us conclude our AOB with... A couple of thank yous. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us over the last week or so. I had a tweet from G. Baker on Christmas Eve. He said, getting ready for work, listening to the Christmas edition of the Sitcom Club. Bliss. Thank you very much, G. Thank you to Birdie, who tweeted us. Great show on Christmas Eve. Thank you also to Spike Nesmith, who's now following us on Twitter. And thank you indeed for anyone who's been listening to the show over the past year. Like I say, it's the first year. I don't know about yourself, Ocho. I'm not really one of these people who's big on doing the whole review of the year and then making up the whole big list of all the predictions for the next year and so on. Nor am I, let's not. No, let's not do that at all. But let's just briefly say thank you very much indeed for your support over the past, what has it been, eight months? And looking forward to the next 12 months of all manner of funnies and what have you. And to kick things off, of course, will be the all-new Birds of a Feller. It's not, I wish it was called the all-new Birds of a Fella. It'd be fantastic. Featuring Crazy Legs Crane, but it isn't. No, but it's on... <laughs> and at the end... 
into Robson and Paul and Kirk come on and do the Pink Panther dance over the end Happy days. I was so disappointed when I got the Pink Panther box set cartoons a few years back and they didn't have the bits and pieces, they didn't have the continuity. It was just the standalone cartoons. They had all the 1978 versions, but they didn't have the intros and outros and so on. But there you go. But anyway, Birds of a Feller returns in two days' time. First the 2nd of January on ITV at half past eight. I'm sure we'll be talking about that next week. Shall we wait until it finishes? Well, we'll make my passing reference to it next week. I think it's reasonable to assess it on the basis of a full series, yeah. Now then... That is, unfortunately, a luxury which is not available to us yet when it comes to today's topic, because Still Open All Hours has only so far been given a pilot. And is this the the most recent sitcom that we've ever talked about? This is less than a week old as we're speaking about this. And usually we're talking about stuff like 40 well, years ago. speaking so. about it, it was yesterday. Yeah, no, don't pull back the curtain, for God's sake. People think we're speaking live as we speak, if not sooner. It's not kayfabe. <laughs> how do you know about kayfabe? What do you mean, how do you know about it? What, are you a professional wrestler? No, but that's... that's are you guarding the secret? That's my universe. That's what, I'm big pro wrestling. I can't remember how I heard about it, but I was reminded of it again the other day. I went re-reading up about kayfabe and cheap heat and cheap pop. Yep, yeah. No, that's just really weird hearing you use terminology that I associate with other people. You know, that, that, that's odd. No, it's just completely thrown me there. Two two universes have suddenly collided. But, yeah, no, we don't want to break kayfabe. It interests me the, the same way that uh, Fairground Polari interests me. Yes, indeed. Well, of course... The, the... there was No, there was a Batman comic a few years ago, and for good and sufficient reasons, Dick Grayson, previous Robin, was now Batman. And, of course, he used to be a trapeze artist. So there's this bit where he's going up against some villains who are also fairground people and circus people. So he understands their language. So this is, you've got this bit where Batman comes in and goes, I rock of the jib, who's your gaffer? <laughs> he's the gaffer. Um, <laughs> no, of course, it's the wrestling industry has evolved and fairgrounds have a lot to do with each other, of course, because they, they come out of that whole era and you've got a lot of different promoters you know basically trying to entice the public in and if you're not interested in going off to see the circus and you're not interested in seeing the fortune teller down uh, the other end or whatever you might go off and see the wrestling matches uh, whatever it may be but yeah no it's a fascinating fascinating period of time but yeah so okay no if, if, if we're no okay we're gonna break kayfabe I'm, I'm not happy about it but all right then Open All Hours was on less than 24 hours ago as we were speaking. There. The secret is out of the box, and you realise now, Trill, that we can never, ever put that back in. You do realise that if you download the MP3s, in the comments tag of the MP3s, it will tell you what day <laughs> the podcast was recorded. Have you not noticed that? Now you tell me. Well, I've always done that, just out of <laughs> sheer use and interest, if anything. If for any reason we have to cite the date we said something, we look, look there you go. Oh, for compliance issues. Oh, it was there all along. The date was encoded in the MP3. Your Honour, I never said that about Jim Davidson. <laughs> go back and check. No, okay, so we've smartened everybody up now. So, all right then. So, yeah, this time yesterday... Well, actually, this time yesterday I got interrupted by a phone call and I had to put open levers on pause. So my version of open levers actually lasted an hour. But nevertheless, that was... So are we going to start with Still Open All Hours rather than leading up to it? 
Because I don't know about you, but I've watched all four series of the original Open All Out. Well, indeed. And are we going to go backwards then? Well, let's look back briefly at Open All Out itself. Set the scene for last week's slash yesterday's restaging. Open All Out's potted history. Pilot was within seven of one, 1973. Then developed into a full series. Keith Chegwin's in it. He is. And the funny thing about Open All Hours youth, Joyce. is that it has four series over a nine-year period. So <laughs> yes. you've got first series 76, then a five-year gap, then you've got two series, one after the other, and then you've got another gap before the final series in 1985. And apart from a little trailer that the BBC put out somewhere, I think it might be 99 or thereabouts, they had a lot of different BBC comedy people all telling one joke, all cut up different bits and pieces and so on. And we actually got a glimpse of Arkwright there as part of the, the sequence. So that was the last time we actually saw Arkwright. It wasn't 1985. It was around about turn of the century. But anyway, Open on Lowers, personally speaking, one of my top sitcoms. It's one of my go-to sitcoms in as much as if I spot it on gold, it gets recorded. And even if I'm plowing through the Sky Plus and I've got a ton of stuff on there and I'm thinking mm, I'm not really in the mood for that mm, I want to see that but not right now but I don't want to delete it and so on if Open All Hours is sitting there it's going to go on and it's cliched but I know where I am with it and I know I'm going to enjoy it no matter what era it is it doesn't as far as I can tell it doesn't have any dip in quality over the years I think actually in some ways it even improves as it goes on how about yourself Ocho? You're a fan. I like it. I don't have that same passion that you clearly have for it. But yes, I like it well enough. It reminds me of where I'm from. Series 4 seems to draw on the previous three series for ideas. It's just not quite the same spark. But it's not a huge drop-off. And of course, it's made in that time where, yes, there are repeats, but not to the same extent. So you can pretty much get away with recycling an idea and the audience are only going to be half aware. It seems slightly familiar. They're not going to be able to recite it along with it. I do have a fondness for shows of that type. Shows such as, for example, say, Porridge or Father Ted or any other situation where you can bring in other people for a brief period of time and it doesn't look odd. So, obviously, in this universe, we've got the shop and you've got customers. And... I do, I mean, some of my favourite bits in the show are just those little conversations between Arkwright and a customer. And it may be somebody who's a regular, maybe somebody you never see again. But just those little snatches of dialogue and the fact that you learn so much, or at least you paint the picture of that person in your mind from those little pieces of dialogue. I like the fact also that the dialogue is not stilted. Well, you get it in some sitcoms where somebody will walk in my favourite example of all time, take a letter on Mr Jones, where the secretary says, oh it's Mrs Fing's mad Italian maid, there you are just told you if you need to know, she's mad, she's Italian, she's a maid there you are, got it in free but they don't tend to do that to the best of my memory, you know, open all hours it's, it's just natural, person will come in, and of course he's going to say, hello Mrs so and so naturally anyway so it doesn't feel clunky he can then say something like how's your old man or how's that limp of yours or something like that and it doesn't feel as if you're trying to crowbar in a, a sequence of gags it's forthcoming it just feels natural 
as I said before, it's interesting that Roy Clark doesn't have a massive variety of voice. A lot of characters all talk the same, but that's fine. At Backstreet in Doncaster, a lot of people are going to talk the same. It's something that, it's not really a strength, it's a weakness, a feature. It's neither a special feature, nor is it a bug. It's just one of the things that he has in his work. It also benefits from the simplicity of the premise. You don't need to have, for example, Holly coming on, Norman Lovett, Hattie Hayridge, whoever. You need to have them come on at the beginning and give you a little explanation as to who these people are and why they're there and so on. It's a shop. And Arkwright is shopkeeper, Granville is his nephew. There you are. Again, there's a hell of a lot to be said for that in terms of just hitting the ground running and not having to worry about a lot of explanation or a lot of backstory and so on and so on. I mean, the shows like Reginald Perrin do that very well in terms of communicating to the viewer exactly what's going on if it's an unusual setup and you've got to get it across to the viewer as quickly as possible so you can get on with the, the funnies and today's plot. But it's not necessary in the show because it's already there. So, yeah, it benefits from just being a, a world that everybody recognises. And I will not hear people say... I'm, to, to be fair, I've not really had a lot of people say this on Twitter. I was expecting more of this last night. I will not hear people say that stores like Arkwrights do not exist anymore. They do. They're on my street. I can go to one right now. There's a, a hardware-type store down there that just has everything. doesn't matter what it is that I don't have. If I haven't got it, then it's going to be in there, or he'll know somebody on the street who's got it. So those places are still there, and they're still recognisable. In the run-up to Still Open All Hours, I saw quite a few message board conversations. It's interesting the misapprehension a lot of people had about Granville. I think it's what they called on TV Tropes Dawson casting. I think it's about Dawson's Creek, sadly, not Les. But Damn it! <laughs> it's that thing of casting older people as younger people. And the wheels really start to come off by series four. But some people who, you know, just occasionally catch the odd episode, I'm not blaming people for not keeping notes, are under the impression that Granville is 40 and a deeply frustrated virgin who never gets anywhere with girls. Well, from the dialogue you work out, even when David Jason is 40 in the show, Granville is only about 30. He's 25 in the pilot. In 1981, it's stated that he's conceived in 1949, so he's about 31. But also, his f lack of success with girls is actually him getting 90% there. <laughs> he clearly knows a lot of girls. And they talk to him not as, oh, it's Granville, it's a bit weird, let's make fun of him. There's a few times he mentions he's been to parties and he's had girls under the mistletoe. And even in the pilot, right at the end, there's this girl he's looking at, he's, he's riding around with her on the shop bike in the basket. Now... I don't want to get all medical about this. <laughs> but just to take a step back from something you said there a moment ago, do we actually think that Granville is a, you know, a, a Virgo? Intacto? Yeah, he mentions it a couple of times. Does he? Does There's, he actually there say is, that? There um, is. This is. My notes are very extensive. Um, unfortunately, they tend not to be complex. So sometimes I'll look at something, what the hell was I thinking there? Series 2, episode 6, he refers to himself as the Virgin Grocer. Ah, see. He's okay. not Billy Henshaw, but yes, there is another plot where he can't remember what happened at a party, and the girl he can't remember it happening with has a baby. And also, the number of times he's got a girl behind the counter, or 
Yeah, yeah Milk Woman well, was pulling her skirt down when Arkwright burst in. Well, and he also that he he had his hair very neatly combed on that occasion, if I yes. remember correctly. And this is reflected in Arkwright's situation with Nurse Gladys as well. They're clearly close enough that she is his official fiance. But it's again, it's getting ninety percent of the way there, and then not being able to because the car's too small. I really like Arkwright and Nurse Gladys Emanuel as a couple. I find them much, much more interesting and entertaining than, for example... Okay, I know it's not a like-for-like, but we just mentioned butterflies, for example. And half the time with Rhea and Leonard, I'm just thinking, for God's sake, just get on with it! Uh, and Like we spoke about before with Who's the Boss? You know, it's all very coy and, <laughs> oh, well, mm, I don't know about this. And no. and you're thinking, God damn, just get up the stairs and get down to it. It's like, you know, have you ever seen Spaced? Yes. Right. What happens in the first episode of Spaced? When they've just I didn't become say I've seen it recently. Okay. Well, I don't know. Maybe the first episode, maybe the beginning of the second episode. But basically, they've become flatmates and they say, I guess we better get this out of the way. And they just do it. Now and then. And just say, you know, there was, it was going was to be sexual tension simmering throughout, so, you know, we better just take this box immediately, and then that's it, done, then. And, I don't know, I just like the fact that Arkwright and Gladys Emanuel are just upfront and honest with each other, and they're not coy, and they don't give each other little furtive glances or anything like that, they just, I was going to say, just come out of it. Arkwright never goes that far, of course. But no, filth. But no... I, I like the, the fact that they are just wearing a heart and a sleeve and just being up front and so on. It's much more refreshing. I think that's a much better way to, to be, personally. This was interesting after getting Sam home, where the women all fall into fairly standard, almost seaside postcard types. There is something slightly different about Lily Blesser in that she is no longer the dolly bird, but is keeping the flame burning and is probably the nearest thing that Last of the Summer Wineland has. But it's, you know, wives with rolling pins and curlers and good time girls. Not so much in open all hours. The women are a bit more complicated. Even that, I mean, Nurse Gladys Emanuel is a very strange combination of the lust figure for Arkwright, but also with the rolling pin as well. Very odd combination of, if you want to take it over to Last of the Summer Wineland, she, she's a combination of Pearl and Marina. Yeah, well, she's... A, a real person. She's a well-rounded character. I'll say she's well-rounded. Bayek. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that that is a really good point because you do so often get that in sitcoms where you get, and it does quite often involve the female characters, perhaps more so than male characters, you get characters who are just simply given a tag. Oh, that person is frumpy. Oh, this person is sexually liberated. Whereas in the real world, of course, people are not like that. People can surprise you. People have multiple facets to their personality. And that doesn't always doesn't always work in sitcom land. I think that part of that will be to do with comfort factor for an audience. The, the audience does not really want to get to know and love a character and then discover a completely different side to them in one episode. Or if they do, they want them to revert back to your dot at the end of it. I don't think that... Also, you need a lot of skill to make complexity look like complexity rather than just inconsistency and just look like lack of continuity. 
we've spoken before about situations fitting characters or characters fitting situations and sometimes the example I always give is it was just on last night the Steptone Son film Old Man Steptoe has somehow convinced Albert to take him on his honeymoon and when they're in this restaurant abroad Albert is the one who's enjoying the local cuisine and Howard is saying to him oh you couldn't just have egg and chips like everybody else because it's you know it's like a principally English contingent so they're catering to them and of course the whole point of it is that Albert then gets sick and so then Albert and Harold have to return home so it's necessary as a plot device but at the same time I'm thinking there's no way that Albert would be the one to say that he wants to try the local cuisine and Harold is the one saying just have egg and chips That's, that would never happen in Shepherd's Bush no, we're back to the odd man out problem aren't we well there are lots of odd man out problems no but that, that episode <laughs> where Neville is like oh I'm learning French because I'm going into the EEC now I'm in France <laughs> I hate the French <laughs> yes so the, the women but the, all, the, all the women now my memory had been when we'd been talking about what happened next because despite the fact that one of the characters I'm about to talk about only appears in two episodes, I still think that the two pillars of womanhood in Granville's life are the milkwoman and Julie. And my memory had been that Julie's as naive as Granville. But then she walks in, the first thing is her husband's left her. I think she undergoes a slight change between episodes because the first time she's, you know, she's complaining about her husband being gallivanting around. The next time, it's not like they're playing it down, but I th- or that's been written out. But I think they're playing up her infantilism a bit more when she comes in and she's eating jelly tots and she finds Granville worldly and sophisticated <laughs> and thinks he looks amazing when he's put on his cool <laughs> 80s disco gear. You mean these cocoa tin lid? <laughs> yes. And I imagine a lot of people probably think that he will he never gets anywhere with the milkwoman and the milkwoman finds him a cute, rather pathetic figure. Of course, that bit where he pretty forcefully kisses her and she lets him and then he kisses her again and this whole thing about you know kiss for one pint of milk a kiss for another pint of milk and then he comes into the shop with nine pints of milk (laughs) it being a sitcom people don't really get what they want but there is a connection between them so it's not the 40 year old virgin versus the worldly woman the women are more interesting in open all hours than i think other roy clark sitcoms and a lot of other sitcoms in general Mavis is a bit more of a... I mean, the joke about Mavis is just her indecision. I'm really keen to pick up on something that you just said there because this is something that I don't really think we've delved into a great deal on previous episodes. You said about sitcom characters can't easily get what they want. Of course, that's absolutely true because without being insulting about it, sitcom characters who get what they want is what happens in the last series of The Upper Hand after they've already finished the story, effectively. The chase is over and now they're together and there isn't really anything else now to say or do. If Del Boy had actually realised the value of that watch in episode one of Only Fools and Horses, <laughs> then what else would there be? I don't think that people would be talking about it 30 years later if it had just been 30 years of Del Boy smoking cigars and drinking brandy and complaining about inheritance tax law and so on and capital gains and so on. And yeah, of course, you think at times, you think, why doesn't Granville get a break? I mean, you know, as you say, the, the, the women are, are interested people talk in about. I've seen people talk about, well, that's Granville's tragedy. 
I don't think Granville is a tragic figure. He's just frustrated. People not getting what they want isn't necessarily tragic in sitcoms. Sometimes it can just be everyday frustration. There's a big difference between why does it always happen to me and why is this happening to me? Here's a thought. I think that Granville, say Granville, had actually settled down with the milk lady or with Julie or with Navis. I think that to an extent, I think he would still be a frustrated figure. Yeah, because he's a dreamer. Exactly. This is when we, when we did our whole what happened next, and we we had a completely different version of what happened next to Granville, but for for different reasons. Well, there's an episode, for example, there's an episode of Men Behaving Badly, where Gary is frustrated about the number of partners that he's had before Dorothy. Now, at this point, he's been with Dorothy, according to storylines, he's been with her about five or six years. And, okay, they have their ups and downs, but they're still a fairly solid couple. And yet there he is pining for lost opportunities of his past and he wasn't, you know, jack a lad in his teenage years and so on. I get exactly the same impression about Granville. I think if Granville had settled down in 1985, then he'd still be either thinking back to, oh, I should have been doing this, should have been doing that, if only I hadn't been in that damn shop for 18 hours a day, or thinking about where he wanted to be right now, and it would be anywhere but here. Not necessarily you know, without his new partner, but he'd want to be in... sound a bit more sad than he really is. No, I don't mean to. I no, I just, just mean generally... That... Moderately frustrated with things. Yeah, no, I, I don't mean to make him sound like a sad figure. I just mean that he's not the type... I don't think he's the type who would be happy-go-lucky, counting his blessings and so on. Because you do get characters like that come into the shop who are... I suppose you'd say they were probably more downtrodden than at peace with the world, but they have got to that point now. Well, like Sam, for example, in Last of Summer Wine. He's got his shed. He's got a lily blesser. He's... he's fairly happy with his lot. He's made the best of his situation. I don't think Granville would be like that. I think Granville would always be dreaming of where he wants to be next. That's part of the reason I think about David Jason. I think the older actor for a, for a younger part helps with the world weariness. Because there is this strange world weariness about him, even though he's so unworldly. I don't really think that... I mean, okay, you maybe could make an argument for the last series in 1985, but I don't really think that David Jason is too old to be Granville. Not in the same way that Reg Varney's clearly far, Oh, yes, far too the, the, old to but there stand. is that thing where he's he's saying young people and people my age, and it, it starts to look a bit odd when he's 45. Roy Clark has not moved the character on in that way. They never actually admit to him being as old as 45, do they? No, I think... I, th- I, th- I think as long as the series runs, Granville is supposed to be between 25 and... 33. See, this is why there's never been a successful TV adaptation of The Bruins. Because if there had been, then the Bairn would probably be getting a telegram from the Queen about it. <laughs> but, okay, the odd grey hair and wrinkle aside, then Granville is just Granville. He's just gonna be who he is. He's that perpetually frustrated, youngish chap. As far as Arkwright is concerned, did you notice over the course of the four series, do you think Arkwright becomes more of, I don't want to say caricature, but... A monster? An inhuman, vicious, evil monster? Well, there's that thing where he suspects that one of the, a visiting Hungarian might be Granville's father and does everything in his power 
to prevent them talking to each other. Mm. Yeah, I, I think also the episode where the episode where he discovers that Granville's put his advert in the Lonely Hearts column. Now, my my first reaction is, well, what's that going to do with Arkwright? It's none, none of his business. And yet he's determined he's going to interfere. And I'm not quite sure actually what it is that Arkwright is offended about, the fact that Granville's done this. I, I don't know, it's just almost as if he's a bit narked that he's done this behind his back, as if he hasn't told him in advance or something like that. But yeah, that's that's an odd one. That is a bit strange. He's not quite usually as overbearing as that. But in the earlier episodes, if Arkwright says something like have a drink or something to a customer or a friend, I don't automatically assume that he's going to charge him for it at the end of this sequence. Whereas nowadays, or certainly Series 3, Series 4, then if I hear him say anything like, oh, you know, have a bit of this, have a bit of that, and so on, you know it's coming. You know he's, he's going to you know request full price for it. There was that episode where Gladys Emanuel has sort of snapped and she said to him, we're going away for the night. And there is that implication that he hasn't actually been away from the shop for 24 hours for some considerable time. I mean, we're talking about 20 years or something like that. Yeah, to have an operation. Yeah, and even then he kept his money belt on. Well, no, he wanted to, but they wouldn't let him. They insisted that he takes it off the operating table. I think I don't think that that would necessarily fit original Arkwright's character, say the pilot, first series and so on. And there's not a huge difference. It doesn't go undergo a personality transplant or anything like that. But as time goes on, he... Uh, well, that's normal, isn't well, it? As it's time it's goes called on, it becomes um, more Flandersization, I believe, on TV tropes, where a character eventually becomes... It just gets focused on their quirkiest aspects. So is it fair to say that Arkwright becomes a bit more of a caricature... Oh, but not massively yeah. over the course of four series. I think, again, it's a Roy Clark thing. He likes his formulas, which brings us back to this story I've heard that Still Open All Hours was written in a hurry. Yeah, shall we move on to... Yeah, so let's get on to Still Open All Hours. If you've not already seen it and you're listening to this podcast the day it went out, you've still got a couple of days to see on iPlayer. Because it is so new, we've got the advantage of being able to actually see the newspaper reviews for the show. Well, you Just might have. a few of them. The Orange County Register hasn't mentioned it at all. <laughs> there may have been something in the LA Times. I am trying to find out if, for obvious reasons, if the show is going out in New Zealand anytime soon. And so far, I've not actually found a screening. But I'm working on it. I'm browsing the TV listings. But just looking around, the general consensus, very, very rough non-scientific approach to going through all the different reviews and so on, I would say that it is more positive than negative. The Daily Mail, for example, their headline is TV viewers hail the one-off return of classic sitcom Open Lovers as warmly nostalgic and a fitting tribute to Ronnie Barker. Now, that's the first point I'd like us to touch on. The way that that's phrased there... It's the kind of headline you'd expect in the mail with their demographic and so on. But within about 10 minutes of that episode, I was starting to think, this sort of feels like it was brought back for something like Comic Relief or Children in Need. Like, for example, the other week we were talking about the Butterflies episode that was put into Children in Need. I think it was 2000. And it wasn't intended to go any further. Now, clearly that's not the case in this instance because there are plans, or at least... There was, there was hope that this might develop into a series. And we should also point out as well that Still Open All Hours 
was the highest rated program of Christmas week. I understand it had 9.43 million viewers on Boxing Night. The highest rated program on Christmas night, by I think about a million or so, fairly clear margin, was Mrs. Brown's Boys. There's two things I like about that. One is that with all the misery, and I'll be quite upfront about it, I am not a fan of the soaps. And every <laughs> Christmas night... You and Tony Curry. You get an hour of Emmerdale... You get an hour of Coronation Street, you get an hour of EastEnders. You're always guaranteed you're going to get them. We've now got two hours of Downton Abbey as seemingly a mainstay now as well. And I really like the fact that EastEnders not only sunk in the ratings, but also that Emmerdale didn't even get into the top ten. And there on the night itself was this unashamedly broad, happy, ribald, couldn't care less attitude sitcom that you just accept it's got that type of live theatre atmosphere which is where it came from originally and it just translates to the screen very well and it's exactly the kind of thing you want to see on Christmas night and I'm so pleased that it topped the tree we'll see what happens when they take iPlayer and ITV player and all that kind of stuff into account but the other thing I quite liked about that as well is that 30 odd years ago it was a repeat of Porridge that actually got the highest viewing figures in 1984 and it just sort of felt nice that 30 or so, or 29 years later, here's another of Ronnie B's projects that was top in the tree in Christmas week as well. But yeah, I did get that sort of sense that it was a bit of a trip down memory lane. And I can't really see any other way that it could have been. And yet, that's not necessarily the ideal situation to then develop a series out of it. I thought it was weird. I didn't think it was particularly good. I didn't think it was particularly bad. I didn't think it was consistent enough to be mediocre. It was odd. I watched it with my wife, who is, I think is probably a bigger fan of Open All Hours than I am. And we didn't laugh a lot. We didn't sit there stone-faced. But we didn't laugh a lot. And it felt like it was just out by degrees and not even that it was consistently out by degrees it was kind of like a little bit sharp here a little bit flat there a little bit sharp a little bit flat the rhythm's going slack the rhythm's going tight it was odd it's not one of those where i can go well that was rubbish and i said it was going to be rubbish and it was oh it's great to have them back it was peculiar i thought the the strongest bits were the scenes between granville and leroy yes i mean I was pleased that Leroy, for me anyway, he wasn't an annoying character. Cause you yeah, he didn't that. hit his father. That was the one thing I was dreading. I didn't think it was particularly likely with Roy Clark at the helm, but there was that worry that somebody somewhere in the commissioning process and the editing process was going to have him, your rubbish dad. Yeah, and he's also... And yet I, there I, is, I the, you know, Granville is cramping his style. And he's confident, but in some ways it's misplaced confident, and he's not arrogant. I was a bit concerned that he was going to be just. Yeah, there had been this thing in the pre publicity about how he was much more successful with the girls. And I liked a little indication there that he can't always cope with it. Yeah, I think that was the bit I was really expecting them to get wrong, and that was the bit they got right. I think it was weakest when it was harking back to the original. There's one comment here the Radio Times website was asking people, did they like or loathe the show and of course there's plenty of 
comments on the, the page, but there's one particular comment here that I thought was interesting. A chap called Neil Jeffrey said, It was okay, but Granville had turned into Arkwright Mark II and had lost all of his Hungarian joie de vivre. Now, th- this is this is something that I was picking up on towards the end of the the show. It's not fair to expect to have a complete backstory told in the space of half an hour. My expectation, in all honesty, Ocho, is I think there will be a series of this, if for no other reason than the viewing figures last night were so good, and I suspect that the general feedback amongst those who watch it is going to be, on balance, more favourable than negative. So I would not at all be surprised if this does actually develop into a series. I'm not sure how that's going to work out, to be honest. I'm, I'm concerned that you could have like a Doctor at the Top situation, 12 million viewers episode 1 down to 5 halfway through or something of that ilk but if it does develop into a series what I want to know is how did Cranville become Arkwright Mark 2 because there was never any point even right at the end of series 4 where you think that Arkwright's influence is starting to rub off in Granville. Granville remains a dreamer and he doesn't approve of his uncle's miserly ways and so on and yet here we are in 2013 he's not only taken Arkwright's advice but he's actively embraced it he's boasting to Leroy saying I learned from the master and scheming how he's going to get rid of this anchovy paste and so on I thought that was a little bit odd I would have expected Granville Moore to be making do in this situation where he has I mean it's nice that Arkwright's kept his word and Granville's inherited the business and so on but I wouldn't necessarily expect him to just morph into there is the interesting bit in that pre-credit sequence or inter-credit sequence or however it works where the woman's complaining about the you know the fruit on the stall was yesterday's fruit and it's like well, i was here yesterday and i'm still fresh and juicy it's like oh, he's flirting which is not what arkwright would do it would have been interesting to see granville's slightly off maybe coming up with weird schemes for selling anchovy paste but occasionally believing his own publicity because the anchovy paste was a rerun of the ginger cake would have been interesting to see, not that I'm saying that Roy Clark owes it to us to develop the idea for those of us who've seen the Ginger Cake episode, but just for those of us who know Granville isn't in his blood Arkwright Mark II, to see him concoct the fantasy, it's not necessarily an outright lie. He's looking at the anchovy paste and just fantasising about what, what could he say about this stuff? It's not something caught, it's not calculated with him. Yeah, he wants his profit, he wants to get rid of his anchovy paste. But for him, it just comes a bit more naturally. And while you can argue, oh, but you know, they've got to put it, they've got to make it recognisably ordinal hours, they've changed that relationship with the, with the young guy. Leroy is not Granville Mark II. So, yeah, I suppose it loosens the bonds with the original still open all hours, but I think it'd be, it'd just have a bit more long life in it if it did. Because otherwise there's a risk that you're watching this. Hang on a minute, haven't we seen this done before and better? Yes. Well, I think I would have expected those bits and pieces where Granville is talking to the portrait of Arkwright. When he's having those little conversations, he's he's pleased with the situation. He's saying, you'd be proud of me, I'm, you know, I'm following your lead and so on. Whereas I would have thought that perhaps Granville would have said to him, you know, I, 
I'm, I'm doing what you've taught me. I'm not necessarily entirely comfortable with it, but I'm doing things the way that you've taught me, and I'll give you that. Do you know what I mean? But whereas he seems to have just embraced Arkwright's yeah, way it's, 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 so much. It's quite nice to see that Granville's happy, but it's it's a bit hard. I just wanted to mention one last piece in a review. In the Telegraph, it was given only two out of five stars. The headline was, It Felt Like a Sad Relic from Null Era. But right towards the bottom of the review, there was this little piece that said, The biggest flaw was David Jason's performance. He over-articulated his words for the suspiciously excitable studio audience, and this killed any comic timing. I did notice on occasion that Granville's dialogue was sometimes a little bit unusually for open hours, and I think for Roy Clark in general, was unusually a little bit clunky, particularly when Nurse Gladys Emanuel comes in. I'm trying to remember the precise phrase it uses. He says something to the effect of, no, oh, here comes Nurse Gladys Emanuel, still as sensuous as ever, and single and retired. It sort of crams it all yes. into one single sentence. Whereas you'd think that that kind of information would be conveyed in a few lines of dialogue. I feel really sorry for Nurse Gladys Emanuel. She's still across the road. She never got married. That seems a rotten thing to do to a character. I don't know why that was really necessary. Why couldn't they have been married? In fact, when he and said, ah, then... oh, the former nurse Gladys Emanuel, I thought it was the retired nurse Gladys Arkwright. I thought that was going to yes. be the thing. Or I thought if, if he was going to twist the knife, it was going to be something like he died on the honeymoon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But why couldn't they have just been married and settled down and so on? Because even then you could say that that actually leads into the current situation because that might have then ushered in Granville being the head of the, the shop because Gladys Emanuel had exerted her influence over Arkwright to make sure that when they got married you know he retired yeah, seemed, from the shopkeeping it seemed like that weird thing we've had to say that as little as possible has changed since the last episode of Open All Hours proper we'll fill in the bits we have to fill in right we have to give him a young assistant so we'll give him a one-night stand in Blackpool. He's older, so we'll have to indicate there's been some sort of difference in life. But as little as possible have changed. So, so you know, the, the Arkwright never getting his end away situation hasn't changed. It would be pretty miserable if Granville was still a virgin now. That would have been, that would have been beyond humour. That would have just been... That would have been tragic if that had been the way he was portrayed. That would have been Christmassy. What are we saying? That an angel came and brought him Leroy. <laughs> oh, that's right. It doesn't become Christmas until that was, that, the very that, end. Yeah, that shot felt... Was, was that added? Oh, of course, of course, the other return. Stephanie Cole, which, of course... Ah, right now, our bingo card. I mean, I only got two things on the bingo card. I don't know about you, but then again, there were only three things on it. Contemporary reference. The Age of the Cougar. I really didn't like that. I remember sending you the trailer, and I don't think you I quite like much, how she. I, oh, if, if it had just been this is the edge of the cougar, but the fact that she then did a little growl that, oh, that sold no, it honestly, to me. That, it was just no, like, that annoyed me. Come on, you're going to be more, silly. Because I thought, I thought there was no way, there was no way that Delphine. Yeah, it was ridiculously known. out of character, but it was yeah, at exactly. least ridiculous. Exactly, no, I don't. Chris. I do not believe that the Black Widow would know about cougars, and if she did, I don't think that she would <laughs> drop it into the conversation, apart from any disapproving Well, at least way. nobody mentioned twerking. 
Oh, there was no, there was actually, no, that was the only instance, wasn't it? Because there was no mention of iPads. There's no mention of Twitter, as you say, twerking. I didn't hear any references to, I don't know, I mean... Oh, yes, actually, no, there's one character who had no business being in that show and should have been written out. Who was that? The Till. Ah, that till shouldn't no, be there. Good, yeah, I was expecting point, yeah. there would be a, yeah. a new till that had its own bizarre little. By the way, flipping back to original open all hours, you notice initially it's Granville who's afraid of the till, and Arkwright isn't. That's and right, then somewhere yes. along the line, it flips, and everybody's afraid of the till. <laughs> well, I think there's even one episode where it's implied that Granville's got his John Thomas caught in the till, <laughs> and what makes it even more. <laughs> Uneasy viewing because it, no because what he what he does is he doesn't want to put his fingers on the till so he thinks ah I've cracked it. Did so he you sort fall of asleep just, watching American Pie? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. No, don't what cast he does a till. The British equivalent of American Pie. <laughs> no, he doesn't want to put his hands on it. So he says no, I've got it, and he sort of tries to bump it. He just sort of thrusts forward and tries to bump it, and then gets himself caught in it. And what's even more unsettling is that when that episode's shown in gold, that's the point at which they take the commercial break. <laughs> so you're left hanging there for like a full four minutes. It's just going to return with Granville coming back into the shop looking sheepish and clutching something within an ice pack. Anyway, coming back to our bingo card, I don't know if you did a big tick or punched you the You didn't air. have Granville's cock getting cut off in your bingo card, did you? No, there's a, there's a, there was a line in there that I predicted. I didn't predict the line, but I did predict the shape of the line. Remember what I said? Repeated phrases, something, something, repeated phrases. In high heels. Suddenly at her age, she's in high heels. Didn't I say? Did I not say? Because yeah, it's in every Roy Clark thing. It's in flickers. It's in a foreign field. It's his tick. I'm not saying he should purge himself of it. But it's there, and I was—I told you. What I didn't notice was any. Oh, there goes Sanso. He's got Sanso. I just didn't write any examples now, should I? But I, th- I remember that particular shape of gag turning up a lot in series four. Also, no reference to Bitcoin. I noticed. <laughs> That's but that. Well, I think I, I think Roy it. Clark knows that. You know, there's <laughs> before long, those gags are going to be meaningless. This is true. I mean, I did say at the beginning that I was not going to make any New Year's resolutions, but actually I will. My New Year's resolution is to actually understand what the hell Bitcoin is and possibly well, you better purchase hurry. one. Yeah. Well, hang on a minute. I don't want to actually purchase one if it, the arse is about to fall out of it. As long as it's got another year or so to go before the big crash, then I'll, I'll get in there. I'd love to see Arkwright. If only we could have heard Arkwright having a conversation about Bitcoin. Because once he'd grasped what it was, then... He'd want some action, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd probably put it on the window. He'd probably paint it. The all new Bitcoin available here. Maybe invent his own. I'm liking this idea. What would he use this? <laughs> okay, you know those little chocolate coins with the gold wrapping around them. I was thinking maybe he's like got slices of banger. Hey, that's right. Where did that go last night? About this business about trying to cut the bacon thinly. That sort of started and it, was, it didn't well, end. Well, there wasn't really a plot last night, was there? <laughs> Anchovy paste and the, the shop bike. Also, way too many music stings. Apologies, I don't have in front of me who it was that tweeted this last night, but it was such a good observation. Somebody tweeted, I wonder if all those music stings were to make this easier to edit for commercial television. Because, of course, this is going to turn up in gold in a matter of months. Well, that had been my thought at first, but then there seemed to be so flaming many of them. 
It was almost like this will make it easier to chop them down to, to YouTube uploads. Yeah. It's not Seinfeld. Well, that point was made by the independent reviewer who said, for goodness sake, Roy Clarkson trying to do Seinfeld. But I'm not quite sure what he meant because he wasn't talking about the music things. Oh. <laughs> One thing that I did like about this episode, and I think, that, I think, to be fair, I think there was a lot of nice little bits and pieces. And as it was, for what it's worth, I thought it was a lovely episode. I enjoyed it. And I am interested to see if there's any more. And if there's any more, I will definitely watch them. I'm not entirely sure if it's going to sustain a series, but we'll see. But I did like the fact that the customers and new additions, people like Sally Lindsay and Nina Wadia and Johnny Vegas was there, Mark Williams as well, they didn't feel out of place. When a few years back they had that peculiar little sketch of the one Ronnie, and there was Ronnie Corbett, and beside him are the people from Little Britain and so on. It didn't quite... It felt odd. It felt like somebody picked up Ronnie Corbett and just put them in this alternative universe. Didn't feel... This didn't feel like this to me. You know, so I, Johnny thing, Vegas did thing. not seem out of place at all as Wet Eric. They're generally comedy actors. And in original Open All Hours, they're actor-actors. It's not a value judgment. I don't know why I brought it up. Sorry. I've got to ask the question then, Ocho. If it does go to a series, are you interested to see more of it? Um, That's my entire review, actually. Well, I've um, got to take your first answer, so that's going down on the card. Fine. Write um, that down, because that sums up how I felt about Still Open All Hours. Well, you could have had a worse reaction. I mean, you felt better about this than you felt about the Life of Butch Revival. Yeah, I think I'd been expecting a worst-case scenario of that was really grim. I don't think I'd foreseen it being quite so... Um, That was really grim. That was really good. That was mediocre. I hadn't expected it to sort of wave and crest between the two. Between the three. If it does go to a series, more than anything else, the one thing I would really like to see is Granville not revert to type as such, but just be a bit more Granville-ish and less Arkwright-lite. And he's in that position now. It's his shop. And... He's learned a lot from Arkwright, but I don't want him to be Arkwright. I agree. I'm just thinking that I believe that it was out of necessity because there was a change in casting. Do you recall that the original transmission of Old Dr. Beeching was a pilot? And when it became a series later on, the pilot episode became episode one of the series, and yet there where some scenes reshot because I think one of the roles, it was Sherry Houston in the pilot and it became Julia Deacon in the series. So her scenes were reshot with Julia Deacon. If Still Open All Hours was to become a series, I'd love to see that pilot episode become episode one with just a few little tweaks. Maybe even just that scene where Nurse Gladys Manuel comes in and says that she never married Arkwright. Maybe tweak that. Maybe change it. Maybe they were married. And maybe when Granville is talking to the portrait of Arkwright, he just lets slip that he's not entirely comfortable with being Arkwright Mark II, but this is where he finds himself and he's going to make the best you know of it. What? You know it's what? Just, you know it's what just, I mean? just popped into my head now. You know, like I was rewriting that anchovy paste thing as just a weird little fantasy he has. And then have him look at the portrait and then have a little grin to himself. 
because it, it was just a little it was just a little fancy on Grenville's part but now he suddenly realized he can use this fancy to make himself a better shopkeeper or have him look at the portrait and shudder as he realizes he's turning into Arkwright either way I think it would work with him being more Granville-ish. I don't think it needs to be quite so beholden to the past. But I can totally understand why it was the way that it was for that single episode at this time. Because the elephant in the room, of course, is Arkwright, as Reginald Perrin was throughout. And maybe it's necessary to address that before then the series can progress. And maybe in a full series we will actually see it become its own show and become a sequel to Open Ah, oh, three company syndrome. Get it get at peace with yourself. Don't quite don't get quite so bothered with having the shadow of the original hanging over you and I don't think it would take a lot of tweaks or changes to make it a successful series. It's not going to be as successful as Open All Hours. It's not gonna have the same reach for a start. It's twenty thirteen, it's a more competitive environment for a start but I think there's a place for it and I think it could be popular the one thing I just do not want to see is what happened to Liverbird's doctor Reggie Perrin I don't want it to trail off and you know become one of those shows that just gets sort of pushed further and further back or ends up on Sunday afternoons or something like that well I'm going to say I want it to be successful the last of the summer wine slot yes I think it's a Sunday evening show in a way that the original Open All Hours wasn't. I think it's going to be more comfort food than the original was. But who knows? Cole, what if what if it runs for a while? And then for whatever reason, David Jason doesn't do anymore. And then you get onto your third generation. <laughs> <laughs> and you got Leroy well, in charge. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because that actually would start to make it its own show, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because you don't really have then all the harken back to the previous generation. I don't know whether it would be a successful show or not, but I think there is there is definitely scope for a show about a shopkeeper in the 21st century. Because, like I said before, those shops still exist. We don't just have megastores. We've got trolleyed for the big supermarket. There's still a gap in the market for a show about a shopkeeper. So do we have any final thoughts before we wrap up 2013. Like we're the custodians of the bloody year. But not really. <laughs> now look, you need to you need to come up with a bit I mean, if we're going to put yourself and nobody's proposing this, but if we're going to put yourself in charge of seeing out the old year at midnight, then you want to try and invoke the spirit of, you know, Bill McHugh and Peter Morrison and Andy Cameron and what have you. Andy Cameron still alive I'm not sure about Peter Morrison you know so. what I want anyway. that BBC Hogmanay show where Ian Cuthbertson is with Russell Hunter I know that they're not in character but I can pretend I can pretend that's like and seeing the old year out on BBC Scotland Charlie Andal and Lonely <laughs> get together <laughs> and and what more do you want You've, no hang on you started that sentence you're going to finish it get together and what <laughs> what more do you want that's a great name for the show. Dot, dot, dot. And what more do you want? Question mark. That sounds like some satirical thing with Ned Sheeran or Clive James, something like that. Some oddity that'd be on Channel 4. Anyway, what are we talking about next? Are you ready for this? Because I've got a good gag coming okay. up. Okay. Right? You ready for this? Right, here we go. <gasps> right. <clears throat> so, Ocho, 
What are we talking about in the sitcom club next year? I'm waiting for the gag. <laughs> we're not. We're not talking about anything on sitcom club next year. We are. No. Next time. Next time is not sitcom club. Oh, bo. This was your idea as well before, because I know I know you're going to accuse. <laughs> you was not. No, it was you. It was you said. He said, "Oh, we're going to have to talk about these sometime." And I didn't say I wasn't about to stop you. When I said we need to talk about this sometime, that was me saying we need to stop talking about this now. But you've taken that literally, and now we're not, actually going you know to do this. Was, you were on board with this. It was not something where I had to keep bringing it up. So we're going to get round to that. We're going to get round to that. It just suddenly became accepted. No, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. What, this what are this we is doing? a case you... of a, any sufficiently complex uh, system achieves sentience. I can't remember whether what it's cybernetic theory or whatever discipline it comes under, but there is this idea. Any sufficiently complex system achieves sentience. A system is something because it's made up of a number of connections. This theory is behind why, you know, certain organisations just don't work. Or certain organisations go a bit mad. You get situations where organisations which are made up of a larger number of people, and I'm counting all of our listeners in this now, <laughs> eventually seem to have a way of making decisions without anybody actually consciously doing it. It's almost, you know, it's like sick building disease and things like that. Certain organisations become efficient in some way you don't understand, or inefficient in a way you don't understand. That's because it's a complex system. I think somehow the sitcom club has, has befallen the same fate, and somehow the drama club idea decision got taken without either of us actually being involved in this decision-making process. Well, there's no paper trail. No. So next time, we're doing the sitcom club take on some some television dramas of the past, just because they got mentioned so many flaming times. Dick Turpin. Dick Turpin, Callan, and Enemy at the Door. So yes, next week, for one week only, sitcom club becomes drama club. And it's going to be unusual because, dear listeners... I never watch drama, so it's going to be a bit of an oddity for myself. I'm going to be sitting here saying, where the hell are the laughs? And thinking, these shows would be improved by carry-on-style sound effects. And thinking, oh damn it, Edward Woodward could have just caught his trousers it's on that door handle right it's there. It's an experiment, but don't worry, we're not telling you right away. But the week after, we're going to be doing a proper sitcom that's quite famous. I think it might even have got a mention or two in this show, could it not? Possibly. But that's a while away. Next time, it's going to be depressing. More depressing, sorry. Yeah. Don't worry, dear listeners. I'm going to have clown makeup on throughout the show next week. Sad clown makeup. Evil clown makeup. No. Turn that frown upside down. And I'm going to be sitting here honking my horn throughout. That sounded far worse than it was meant to. Anyway, Ocho. Okay. Thank you for spending these last few hours of 2013 with myself. Oh, one last thing to mention. Spats will be discussed next year. We have set when it's going to happen. Are we going to announce this date yet, or are we going to hold on we'll to it? We'll hold on to it, because well? we might always change our minds. <laughs> that's, that's so unlike us. When do we ever promise to discuss a show and then come on sheepishly the following week and say, actually, we're talking about this instead? I think we'll only do it a minimum of 52 times next year. From myself... Hey, Hoban Kanko. You've been Ocho. I have. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening, everyone. Happy New Year to you. And we will see you next year on The Sitcom Club.